The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Uh, this class is Christian Contentment. Um, last week we began by looking at Philippians chapter 4, uh, verses 12 and 13, and there the Apostle Paul says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want, I do everything through him who strengthens me. So we went through that. We're going to go back over that a little bit uh, today. But I want to begin by um, just introducing the book we're going to study, uh, and it's going to be our guide uh, for the next number of weeks. Jeremiah Burroughs, uh, Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I would commend it to you. Um, you can get it uh, online, Amazon, I think, within a couple of days. And uh, it's incredibly helpful, guide. We're going to be walking through it, uh, walking through it today. So I want to begin by just talking about the value of Christian contentment. So let me give you a scenario. Suppose that you won an all-expense-paid trip for two weeks to anywhere in the world. You could choose the location. And you get to dine at the finest restaurants there. You get to do whatever kind of fun activities. Some of you are more athletic. Some of you, uh, you know, would like to do parasailing or uh, some other things. Others a little bit quieter, you just want to see the scenery or maybe just rest on a beach or something like that. Anyway, two weeks of that, but the condition would be that you would have to be discontent the entire time. Okay, two weeks of unremitting discontentment. All right, would you do it? And be like, of course not. I mean, what would the point in that be? I mean, complete misery for two weeks. It wouldn't matter what I was eating or drinking or, or experiencing. If I were not content, it, there would be no point. Conversely, suppose that you could have been with Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail, and you could go through the public beating, and you could go through uh, being thrown in the jail, and you could go through the experiences they had in the Philippian jail uh, with the darkness and the pain and the rejection and the shame and the hunger and thirst and all of that. But in that situation, you would have such a heavenly foretaste of joy like you have never experienced in your life. You would have an overwhelming presence of Christ through the Holy Spirit and that you would look back on that as one of the greatest, if not the greatest experience of your life as you do that. And obviously you would. I've often thought about Daniel in the lion's den. I thought that had to be, in the end, the greatest night of his life. I mean, you think about it. He was thrown in the lion's den and probably knew within seconds he wasn't going to die. <laughs> you know anything about what happened? You know, all his enemies got thrown in. They didn't even make it to the floor of the den. Uh, so here are these mighty lions, and you know within a few seconds you're going to make it. And then he's just, you know, experiencing fellowship with an angel, and he, it was just the greatest night of his life. And I think Paul and Silas, the same thing. You could say, you know, I had a lot of incredible experiences, but that night probably was one of the greatest of our lives. You know, the earthquake, the Philippian jailer being converted and all that. So with those two opposite scenarios, you begin to realize that contentment is the most important, one of the most important things there is. So we're looking at something, what Jeremiah Burroughs calls the rare jewel, the rare jewel of Christian contentment. What does that expression mean to you, the rare jewel of Christian contentment? What comes in your mind as you think about that phrase, rare jewel of Christian contentment? 
part. Yeah. I think it links into Paul's statement, I've learned the secret of being content, that there are many Christians who never do. Anyone else? Rare jewel. Very valuable. Okay, very valuable. I think it's redundant. I thought about that. Like, jewels are by definition rare, aren't they? If they were, like, everywhere on the ground. Like, this morning, we were seeing all these sparkling crystals all over the road. Did you see them as we were driving in? And my kids were like, is it, is it ice? I said, no, it's too warm for that. It was salt. Uh, I don't think it's incredibly valuable. I would have pulled over. I mean, I would have scooped up some, you know. would help us through the next, uh, you know, Christmas expenditures. But it's not. It's just everywhere. There's nothing valuable about it. Um, but it's kind of, it's redundant, rare jewel, but it gives you a sense of that. And honestly, some jewels are rarer than others. You know, I was doing some research on this. The rarest diamond there is, is a red diamond. I didn't realize that. That's the rarest kind of, the color, a colored diamond, a fancy colored diamond is, is colored because of imperfections in the uh, crystal lattice, the atomic structure. For example, like a blue diamond has a, has a boron atoms in there that give it a blue tint. tint. But the red doesn't have any impurities. It just has to do with an elastic stretching of the, uh, of the lattice structure that causes the light to bend. It's very rare, very unusual. Um, and so I, I think it's, in the end, it's not redundant. There are some jewels that are rarer than others. So I think what Burroughs is giving us when he says rare jewel of Christian contentment, he's, he's saying there is something that you can go through your whole life and never find. Uh, some, some Christians really never do learn the secret of being content in any and every situation. So let's zero in now. You have the handout. Let's talk about Jeremiah Burroughs. Just, just by way of uh, a little bit of introduction, Jeremiah Burroughs was a Puritan. Uh, the Puritans uh, flourished in England in the uh, 16th and 17th uh, centuries. Probably by the end of the 17th century, uh, their time mostly had ended. They were a movement of English Protestants who were seeking to reform the uh, English church beyond uh, the really no reformation that Henry VIII did. He was a thoroughgoing Roman Catholic who couldn't get a divorce from the Pope, and so he started his own Catholic church with himself as the Pope. That was really no reformation, but along came the Puritans in subsequent decades, and they said, we really need a genuine reformation of the church. And so that, that's who the Puritans were. And they were trying to renew the, uh, the church in England by biblical principles. Jeremiah Burroughs was one of them. <coughs> they did uh, writings, and they were incredible pastors. And he wrote this book on uh, Christian contentment. And uh, here, based on, uh, he starts as we did with the Apostle Paul, Philippians 4. Uh, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. And he made some initial comments. Christian contentment is not a natural state, but it is a mystery whose secrets must be learned. <coughs> Gets that right from Philippians. Uh, it is not assumed that we will be content today. It's not natural. Just because you're a Christian, you're going to be content. I think you all know that that's true. Um, and so it's not a natural state. It's not natural to Christians. It's something that has to be learned. We have to learn the secret of this contentment. And then he gives in the Puritan style the doctrine of the book, what he's trying to teach you in the book, and that is this, to be well-skilled in the mystery of Christian contentment is the duty, glory, and excellence of a Christian. So that's a, an amazing statement. What do you think he means by being well-skilled in the mystery of Christian contentment? Well-skilled in the mystery of Christian contentment. Absolutely, absolutely. So you can, you can be a little bit good at it at the beginning, 
and then you know on up I got to see my daughter play uh, Daphne play in a violin recital last night and she's just come so far in the years she's playing violin she's very good at it now when she began not not as good all right so she can and, and you know I sometimes pick up the violin and drag the bow across the strings and she's like dad give, give me that all right. <laughs> I am not skilled at all all right, um, but once you begin taking lessons, then little by little, you know, you get better. So what that tells you is you can begin, like, at the outskirts of Christian contentment. And you can bump into it, and you can walk in it a little bit, but you're not well skilled in it. It's the kind of thing that you have to learn. And he says to learn that, to pursue skill in Christian contentment, he says, is the duty, glory, and excellence of a Christian. Glory and excellence probably are synonyms, so I'm not going to parse the difference between them, but duty is a little bit different. It, it is the duty of every Christian to be well-skilled at Christian contentment. What does that mean to you? The duty of a Christian. Yeah, to some degree, we could see our Heavenly Father, we could see Christ coming to us today and saying, I expect you to be content today. Could he do that? Could you see him saying that? I expect you to be content in whatever I choose to give you today. I think I could see him saying that to me. I'm expecting that from you today. And it's like, wow, that's pretty weighty. It is. Uh, but we owe it to him. We have an obligation, put it that way, we have an obligation. Paul speaks in Romans uh, chapter 1. Uh, we have an obligation to share the gospel with people, he says. Uh, we have a debt, an obligation. He says the same thing in Romans 8. We have an obligation to Christ to be content today. So it's a duty. What about the glory and excellence of a Christian? What do you think he means by that? This is a... Uh, the glory and excellence of a Christian to be content. Yeah, I mean, we, we are called on to be glorious. We're called on to be excellent. And uh, Christian contentment is the glory and excellence of a Christian. Anyone else on that? We're putting, we're putting our Christianity on display. You, you talk about levels of sanctification. Someone who's inner Christian who's becoming more and more mature. Somebody who's fully mature as a Christian. These are valid ways of speaking. And so somebody, we're never going to be perfect in this life. But this issue of contentment is very much a part of our sanctification. It's a big, big part of it. And when you could say that we have achieved it, that we have learned the secret and we're displaying it every day, you'll be the most glorious and excellent as a Christian you can ever be, if that's how you are. That's what I think we're saying. This is, this is the highest level of Christian sanctification you'll find. So at any rate, with that statement, that doctrine, that, that we owe it to God, we owe it to Christ to be content, and if we can achieve it, if we can become well-skilled in this mystery, it will be the most glorious and most excellent state we can achieve in this life. That means this is something well worth pursuing. So it's good for you to be here and study this. After we get done today, and even after we get done with this whole course, the multiple weeks we'll be together, this will be a topic worth your attention the rest of your life you'll find that it actually will continue to be an issue for you. It's not something that you're going to say, well, I've, I'm glad I took that class four years ago. I've learned all that. I'm on to other things now. Really? How's that going for you? Are, you? are you really being content in any and every situation? I don't think it's anything that will ever be finished learning. All right, that's the doctrine that he's giving. But that, the, the definition is worth the price of admission. And that's what we're going to spend most of the rest of our time with uh, today. Uh, Burroughs defines Christian contentment. And I would love somebody to be able to read for it, read it for us. It's in bold there on your sheet. Read it right off the sheet. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, 
gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. That is an incredible definition. It's also not you know, immediately obvious what each of those words mean. So it's going to take a long time to unpack it. We're going to just walk through it um, carefully. Uh, the book that I'm writing now on Christian contentment, I'm going to spend a lot of time just unpacking in def this definition because I don't think that we 21st century Christians are used to talking like this. We're not used to big, long, thick definitions. The word disposal doesn't mean much to us. We're not really sure what that means. And so it's worth slowing down and trying to unpack it. So let's do that. Christian contentment is that sweet, quiet, inward, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. So let's unpack it. And what I want to do is I want to jump into the middle of the definition. I find it helpful to start with the words frame of spirit. Christian contentment is a frame of spirit. He's going to describe it with four adjectives, but first and foremost, it's a frame of spirit. What does that mean to you, a frame of spirit? Again, the word frame is not something that we use very often. We sometimes hear of somebody's frame of mind, their frame of mind, something like that. Uh, in the, uh, the hymn, Solid Rock, it says, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. That would be an exact same use, but that doesn't mean that you all know what you're singing when you say, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. So what does a frame of spirit mean to you? Okay, it's a disposition. I think the word attitude might come in. It's a heart state. Um, again, this clicks into what I told you before. The, the most helpful uh, interpretive key to the book of Philippians is that the whole four chapters is about attitude or demeanor. Like what attitude you take in your circumstances. And this is really almost like the crown jewel is this contentment. The whole book is, the whole epistle is about rejoicing and suffering and all that. It's a frame of spirit. It's got to do with your attitude. Like many say, you can't control your circumstances, but you can control your attitude. So it's an attitude. It's a disposition, an inner disposition. We'll get to the four adjectives right now, but it's the frame of spirit. It's a heart state. It's an inner nature. Okay? Um, so, Jeremiah Burroughs says, contentment is soul business. It's something to do with your soul. It's an inward... Um, uh, work, and we'll get to those four words in, in, a, in a moment. Uh, contentment also is not merely one act. It's not just a flash in a good mood. You'll find many women, uh, men and women who, if they are in a good mood, will be very quiet, but this will not hold. It's uh, not a constant course for them. It's not the constant tenor of their spirits to be holding gracious under affliction. So anyway, it's a frame of spirit. We're looking for a, 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 an a frame or a de demeanor or disposition. All right, now let's look at the descriptions. There are four words that he used to describe the frame of spirit. Sweet, inward, quiet, and gracious. So let's start with the first one. It's a sweet frame of spirit. I find it helpful to think of two opposites to the word sweet, and that would be sour and bitter. Okay? Sour and bitter. And I'm going to make a perhaps arbitrary distinction between the two. Let's talk about somebody who has a bitter frame of spirit, or they are bitter people. What does that mean if somebody's bitter? Yeah, they're, they're very negatively focused, and, and they're bitter generally about something, okay? 
So here's a distinction I, I might make between somebody who's bitter and somebody who's sour. I think that most bitter people are sour, most sour people are bitter, uh, and in the end there might be no difference at all, but this might be helpful. Um, bitter, bitterness probably has to do with things in the past, whereas a sour outlook has to do with the future. Okay. Um, so, people can be bitter about things in the past, generally sins that have been committed against them. Maybe they were abused when they were children, or maybe somebody did something to them at work, or they were fired unjustly, or something happened, and, and they just can't get over it, or they might even have experience in a local church. You know, the pastor was this way, or the, the church members were that way, and so you can find non-Christians that way that are very bitter about church. You know, religion was shoved down their throats when they were kids, and then they had this experience when they tried to go to church one time in college, and it never worked out that one time, and they've never been back. You know, and so they're, they're bitter. I remember sharing the gospel with a guy, and he was talking about this, and he, and he told some very bad situation, which was just somebody was rude, you know, and all that, and he's never been back to church. And I asked him if he had ever had food poisoning, and he said, yeah, yeah I actually have. I said, did you give up eating? <laughs> I mean, we have bad experiences, but we don't give up eating. You know, in the end, he said, you know, good point. I don't know that I convinced him to try going back to church. Um, but, you know, an individual like that, they have some bad thing happen, and it just colors their whole disposition toward church, let's say, in that case. So there's bitterness uh, because of unforgiveness freedom. Sometimes people are bitter toward God. Uh, they, they feel angry at God because they uh, have had some things happen in their lives and they just have a very bitter disposition toward God. So that's bitterness. And then sourness, again, just like Diane was mentioning a moment ago, um, I think about an Eeyore person. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, poor Eeyore. We always pounded on Eeyore, but I think he kind of deserves it. I mean, when you think about an Eeyore person, what, what is somebody like that with a sour outlook? All right, now I think hope is a frame of spirit. I think hope is a disposition of the heart. And hope, the essential aspect of hope, is that the future is bright, right? You're looking forward to it. You're happy about what's coming your way. Christian hope is based on the Word of God. So you're positive or happy about what's coming your way based on the promises of God. I've often talked about immediate hope, long-range hope, and eternal hope. So going backwards, eternal hope, I am looking forward to what happens after I die. I believe that I'm going to be in heaven, and I'm going to be in a resurrection body, and I'm going to be in a beautiful world, and I'm going to be with Christ, and it's better by far than anything I've experienced here on earth. I am looking <coughs> forward to death, like Paul says in Philippians 1. That's hope. All right? That's the very thing non-Christians don't have. They're without hope and without God in the world. But then there's long-range hope, which is I'm looking forward to the rest of my physical life here on earth. I am looking forward to the good things God has in store for me, for the good works I can do, and for the grace that I'm going to experience in Christ. I'm looking forward to that. The rest of my life is worth living. <coughs> Again, non-Christians frequently don't have that. And then there's short-term hope, which is, you know, I love the Christmas season. I'm looking forward to later this afternoon, we're going to go do this or that. You know, very short term. All of those are valid. Christian hope is based on the, on the promises of God. All right? A sour person is a hopeless person. You know? They, they're not looking forward to anything in the future. Things are bad. Things are negative. Things are gloomy. Things are frustrating. All of that. They're sour people. 
All right, so I'm, I'm saying all this negative, a bitter person, a sour person. The opposite is a sweet frame of spirit. Nobody wants to be around bitter people. Nobody wants to be around sour people. Christian contentment is that there's a sweetness to that person. There's a sweetness to it. So, in other words, it, you, you have a, a delight in uh, what God has in store. Now, we Christians have every reason to be sweet, don't we? we? We really should be filled with sweetness. When people bump into us or talk to us, there should be sweetness and light flowing out of our mouths and out of our hearts because God is so good and he's been so good to us. But it's not always the case. Let me give you an example of the opposite, and that is in Ruth chapter 1, there's this woman named uh, uh, Naomi, and her word, her name, Naomi, means pleasant. That's what her name, you know, frequently in the in Hebrew, there are names that mean certain things. Um, and her name means pleasant. But you remember what happened with her. She lost her husband and her two sons. And so not only did she lose some loved ones, she also lost her, her security, social security, even, uh, her way of having provision with men uh, to protect her and provide for her and to shield her from danger. And so she's out there in Moab. She had gone to Moab because there was a famine and her husband and two sons died. She had two daughters-in-laws, you remember, they're Moabite women. And, um, you know, she urged them to go back to their, her, their people and their gods. Uh, and one of them did, uh, Orpah, but the other one was Ruth. And she said, I'm not going to leave. You know, where you go, I, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Well, they go back to Bethlehem at the time of the barley harvest, and it says in Ruth 1, 20 21, they called her a name, Naomi. She said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life bitter. <laughs> I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. So that's what it sounds like when you're around a bitter person. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. All right? So that's the speech of a bitter person. That's, that's not the sound of Christian contentment. What's interesting is there in Ruth 1, it says, So Naomi came back with Ruth at the time of the barley harvest. So it's almost like the text is saying, Look around you, there's grace here. God is at work. Good things are happening. Centuries later, people are going to be talking about you. And you don't even know it. But you're going to be involved in the greatest thing that's ever happened, namely a redeemer born to the world, descended from, you know, your daughter-in-law, Ruth. What a great story. But she doesn't have that perspective, right? So, by contrast, a contented man or woman is absolutely delightful to be around. There's a sweetness to their frame of spirit. And people are attracted to the aroma coming from your life. Do you not see how valuable this is for evangelism? People are without hope, without God in the world. 1 Peter 3 says that you should always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the what that you have. Hope. So you should be evidently hopeful. Obviously hopeful. So that people will ask you why. And, and that will be more amazing to people the more affliction you're going through. You see that. The greater the gap between normal, physical, positive circumstances and your life, and yet you are filled with joy, peace, and filled with Christ, the more people will ask you for a reason why. So that's sweet. 
Second word adjective that um, Burroughs gives is inward. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit. Inward. What does that word mean to you? Inward. Okay, very good. Not a facade that you put on on the outside. So Matt, what does that mean to you when you use that word facade? Right? I mean, we're really talking at this point about hypocrisy. I mean, the word in the, in the, in the Greek, uh, uh, hypocrite, is an actor. It's somebody who puts on a mask, right? So, you know, you, you heard this story like Tears of a Clown. And the idea is you've got this happy mask on, but you're utterly miserable inside. Think about Robin Williams who committed suicide. And what a quintessential example of a, an utterly miserable, sad person, desperate person, who's just making other people laugh every day. Uh, but there's just a big gap. Christian contentment is not that. There's not this, this fake happiness, apparent happiness. It's an inward thing. Now, we already said that by frame of spirit, but we're just underscoring that it's an inward work. You're not going to go to acting school. That's not what we're here. This is an acting class. We're going to act happy. Okay, we're going to take digital photos of your face, your normal <laughs> resting face, and then we're going to give you a scenario, and we want to see a happy face. Okay, we're going to be working on that. I am your face coach. Okay? And, and all of that. Um, no, I mean, it's not an acting thing. It's, it's an inward thing. It's something inside, something that comes from the inside out. All right, thirdly, it's a quiet frame of spirit. A quiet. Now, in a few minutes, I'm going to preach from Revelation chapter 15 about the crystal sea. And we already met, uh, met or, or learned about the crystal sea in uh, Revelation 4, 6. Before the throne of God, there was a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And I'm going to say in the sermon that that's a direct contrast to the churning of the turbulent sea in Daniel chapter 7, out of which the four beasts in Daniel's vision come. And in uh, Revelation uh, 17, it says the sea, the churning sea, are the, are the tribes and languages and peoples and nations. It's the, all the people. And then Isaiah 57 says the wicked are like the churning sea whose waves cannot rest which stirs up mire and muck. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So the idea of a churning storm um, is the contrast to the word quiet. You can imagine when Jesus says to the storm, peace, be still, and everything gets very quiet under his hand. That a, a, could be seen as a, as a physical miracle, but also a metaphor of what has to happen to your spirit. So when certain things happen to you, you start to churn. You know what I'm saying? You start to become like a turbulent sea. And it comes out in what you say. And it comes out in your agitation and your, your mentality. Um, but Christian contempt is quiet. So uh, that would be a picture of rebellion. It would be a picture of chafing and murmuring and, and disquiet. But contentment is a quiet spirit. So it's opposed to murmuring um, at the hand of God. We're going to talk, we're going to have a whole time of uh, discussing the sin of murmuring or complaining. Um, vexing and fretting, these are old Puritan words. Repining, I don't even know what that means. But um, uh, some of these you have to look up, all right? But you know what murmuring is. You know what, what you know, a, vexed, a vexed and frustrated demeanor is tumultuousness of spirit, unsettled, unstable spirit, which distracts from spiritual uh, duties, 
heart-consuming cares. You're just constantly thinking about what's frustrating. Can't stop thinking about it. It's just dominating your mind, and, and you're not quiet at all. Not quiet. You know how it says, cast all your burdens on him because he cares for you. But these people don't do that. They're just absolutely working it, thinking about it all the time. So they're anxious. Um, so heart-consuming cares and sinking discouragements. Ann Burroughs talks about sinful shirkings and shiftings to get relief. So to shirk and to shift means to throw off duties and responsibilities that are yours because you're frustrated about what's going on in your life. So you're going to shorten your quiet time, let's say, or you're not going to go to church, or you're going to not share the gospel with an office worker or something because you're frustrated with what God's doing in your life. People do this kind of thing. And so they're not quiet under God. They're actually very frustrated, very angry, and agitated toward Him. And ultimately then rising up against God in rebellion. So that's, it's opposed to all of that. Now Burroughs says, and we'll talk, we'll unfold these more. I don't think we'll have time today, but we'll unfold these more. It's not opposed to a due sense of the affliction. That you are aware of what you're going through. Very aware. It's not opposed to that, actually. To actually know very well what your medical diagnosis is, or that of your child, or that of your spouse. It's not opposed to that, getting as much information you may need to make a wise decision. You don't want, we're not talking about a head in the sand like you don't know what's happening to you. Or like, a, I don't know, a Buddhist mystic who's seeking non-attachment and isn't really aware you're even in his presence. Just wants out. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about you're very aware of what's happening. Actually, the more aware you are, the more meaningful all this is. You're very aware of what the diagnosis is. You're very aware of your financial situation. You're aware of what's happening. So it's not opposed to that. It's not opposed to orderly and respectful complaints to God in prayer. What do you think I mean by that? Orderly and respectful complaints to God in prayer. I mean, basically, the Psalms give you permission to do this. Orderly and respectful complaints to God in prayer. They tell you how to do it. Like, how long, O Lord, how long? Will you be quiet forever? Why do you make me languish in it? Why do you not rebuke the wicked and my enemies that are rising up against me? There's, I mean, just go through the 150 Psalms sometime and find all the complaints there are. All the time, the psalmist says something's not going right in his life, and he wants God to know about it. Well, that's giving you permission, because these are in the, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to do this kind of thing. Pour out your heart before God. Respectfully, though, don't forget who he is. So pour out your complaint to God respectfully in prayer. So it's not opposed to that. And, you know, I want to say this, this should be obvious, but it's not opposed to lawfully seeking help or deliverance from the affliction. What do you think I mean by that? Lawfully seeking help or deliverance from the affliction. Yeah, I think, to, I think that's a great example. Um, seeking reasonable medical help, you know, uh, for healing, for yourself or your loved one. There's nothing wrong with that. Okay? I mean, we're not Christian scientists that say, you know, we, it's all an illusion. You know, the pain and the suffering and disease and death is an illusion. We don't think it's illusion, an illusion. We think it's real. That Jesus actually did real healings of real sick people. So seeking deliverance. Uh, Jesus didn't rebuke anyone who came and brought him a malady for healing. It's like, what did you bring that to me for? Shouldn't you just be happy with your lameness or your blindness or any of that? He didn't do that. Lawfully... <laughs> not illegally seeking help, obviously, <laughs> lawfully seeking help or, or deliverance. So it's not opposed to that. So it's a quiet, um, we'll talk more about this going forward.
Contentment, in terms of your frame of spirit, remember it's an inward frame of spirit, it's a quietness inside. You're quiet inside you. Your heart is quiet. Like the sea after Jesus said, peace be still. That's what it is. You're not anxious, you're not roiling against you, you're not murmuring or complaining. It's subdued and peaceful under Christ's mighty hand. Um, so, for example, Job 41 through 5. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. So that's God saying that to Job. You want to accuse me? Now's the time. But that's after God had said a lot of things. <laughs> and Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Do you all think that was wise on Job's part? To say nothing more to God at that point? Seems like it was wise. It was time for him to put his hand over his mouth. So, quiet. Or again, Psalm 131, verse 2. I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Psalm 131. There's a quietness the psalmist is talking about. I'm going to lay like a satisfied, nursed child on my mother's breast. I'm going to be just resting on God peacefully. That's what we're talking about here. It's an inward quietness. And then fourth, gracious. It's a gracious frame of spirit. Now, again, this is Puritan speak. What this means is it's a state that can only be worked in the human soul by the sovereign grace of God. That's what gracious means. It's not something you can drum up yourself. You're going to need help for this. You cannot do this on your own. This is such a deep, pervasive soul work. We're not talking about an acting job. We're not talking about, you know, an ex... We're talking about a genuine, quiet heart under extreme afflictions. You can't do it. That's why Paul said the secret is, I can do everything through him who strengthens me. It takes a supernatural strengthening work from God to be quiet under these afflictions. It's gracious. <coughs> it is a supernatural state. It is not the natural quietness of certain personalities. There's some people that are very laconic, you know what I mean? They're, they don't react quickly to things. You know what I'm saying? They're very kind of cool customers, subdued, whatever. We're not talking about natural personality types here. They could still have issues going on in their hearts where they're very deeply bitter against God, even while they have a slow speaking style, etc. It's not the sturdy resolution of your will. It's like, by gum, January 1st, I'm going to be content. I'm going to be discontent for the next two and a half, three weeks. And then I'm telling you what, as soon as the sun comes up on January 1st, I'm going to become a content person. It's going to be my top resolution. Well, you can resolve all you want with your will. You will not. God will orchestrate circumstances to rip through all that. He has, he has the means to do it. He knows you. He knows how to get behind your defenses. He doesn't want you having an independent a uh, resolution or something you're going to perform for him as a gift to him. And it's not from the strength of natural reasoning, said Burroughs. In other words, you can't, like, philosophize your way to this. You can just have the right philosophy, the right kind of outlook, etc. That's a pagan way of thinking. It's like, if we can get the right philosophy, like the Stoics did. You can think about the Stoics or the Epicureans or something. If you get the right philosophy apart from Christ, no, it's not that. It is worked in us by God the Father through the atoning work of Jesus and by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. This is a work of the triune God. So what you need to do first and foremost, if you want to be content, is draw near to the triune God. 
draw near to the Father through the Son by the power of the Spirit and say, please, oh God, work this in me by your grace. That's what we're talking about here. Also, it is a gift of grace. So if you should actually find yourself supernaturally content, you should give God thanks for that. You should go back like the, like the Samaritan leper that was cured and thank God that he worked in you by his sovereign grace. And by the way, you see this cycle in, in Romans chapter 5, uh, verse 3 through 5. Could someone read that for me? Uh, Romans uh, 5, 3 through 5. This is very powerful. It's talking about assurance. This is not in my notes, so it's definitely not in your one page handout. Uh, Romans 5, 3 through 5. So we rejoice in our afflictions, our sufferings. That's what we've been talking about, right? Really, why? Why? According to those verses, why should we rejoice in our sufferings? What's the next step? We rejoice in our suffering because why? Suffering produces endurance or perseverance. Without suffering, you won't learn endurance. What's the next step? Endurance produces character. It produces a character in you. And the next step is really fascinating. Character produces hope. Now you want to meditate on that link, the link between character and hope. Whose character is Paul talking about? Yours. Your character. You have become a different person under the sovereign grace of God. The afflictions have worked in you. You've become a different kind of person. This is all very positive in this cycle. And when you look at the different person you become, you know how you used to be. Now you're a different person. You now have hope. Hope that what? Hope that you're actually a Christian. In other words, the sun of affliction came up, and you were not the shallow soil sea. You actually survived the afflictions and trials, and you actually love Jesus more now than you did before. Guess what? You're genuine. You're the real thing. You're going to heaven when you die. You have a more robust hope. Character has produced hope. That's an incredible link. The more you meditate on, the more amazing it will be. It's like, oh God, would you work in me the kind of character that I can look and see, it was only by your sovereign grace. You're at work in my life. He who began a good work in me will never stop until it's complete. I'm going to heaven when I die. And you become happy. You become joyful. That's hope. But it's based on character. Very interesting cycle. And hope doesn't disappoint us, because in the end, it will be proven genuine. When you get to heaven, you'll find it's all true. <coughs> so here's the thing. This work of contentment, if God should grace you with it, if he should work in it, but work it in you by your... By his sovereign grace, it will be tremendous evidence that you're born again. Evidence that you're genuinely a person. That's pretty powerful. Sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit. Now, in the definition, we're going to jump ahead. We freely submit to him, delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal. We're going to jump ahead to the word disposal in every condition. So I start with frame of spirit and disposal. So fundamentally, Christian contentment is a frame of spirit about disposal. I'm trying to boil it down. It's a long definition, but what is disposal? Well, <clears throat> the key is this. God is sovereign over your life. He is the king over your life. He makes decisions about you. You guys have a problem with that? He actually makes decisions about your life. Like to what level, to what detail does he get involved? What do you think? Totally. He decides everything. Okay, that is called the doctrine of providence. And if you don't have a robust, biblical doctrine of God's sovereignty over your everyday life, you cannot achieve Christian contentment. You will think there's some random force in the universe called luck, or something like that, that God 
puts his hands up like this said, not me. I didn't do it. I don't bring hurricanes. I don't bring earthquakes. I don't bring sicknesses. I don't bring any suffering. That's all the devil or other things. I don't get involved. Now, I'm very good at making lemonade out of lemons that something handed you here. Look, do you realize the longer I talk, that is not the God of the Bible. He's not reacting to the lemons that he finds in your life. He brought the lemons. He brings truckloads of lemons. He's the lemon delivery system. All of the lemons in your life that he wants you to make lemonade out of came from him. He's in charge of all of them. Every one of them. And so that's what disposal is all about. God is, God is in charge. We're going to talk more about the doctrine of providence. This isn't even right. Probably next week we don't have time today. But if you don't believe in the doctrine of sovereignty over daily life, that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. That even the smallest details of your life have been ordained for a purpose. If you don't believe that, you will not be able to achieve Christian contentment. Because you're definitely going to think that this thing that's happening to you now cannot be coming from a loving God. That that's going to be what Satan will use to rob you of contentment. Alright, so I think the image of disposal, I've got a lot of different images here, but I think about <coughs> President Harry Truman sitting in his office with a sign saying, the buck stops here. All right, now, Harry Truman's an interesting kind of Midwestern guy. About as subtle as a brick. All right, makes decisions and that's it. Not afraid of public opinion. Not worried about it, etc. So what, it, what does that mean to you when the President of the United States has a sign on his desk saying the buck stops with Well, it has to do with a, a, an expression, passing the buck. But what does that mean? When somebody's passing the buck. Have you ever heard that expression? What does it mean? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't do it. It wasn't me. It's not my family. Well, what Harry Truman is saying is I'm taking responsibility for everything in my administration. It's like I'm not passing, but I'm taking responsibility. And he's able to look you in the eye and he's not afraid what you think and he's going to make a decision. Well, however much Harry Truman is that way, God is infinitely more that way. He's not ashamed of any of his decisions. He is willing directly to tell you that he did it. He's made this decision. Okay, He has made... He has disposed of you. Let's put it that way. He has disposed of you. Or not so much you, but he's disposed of that issue in your life. So think of it this way. There's a, a, a big thick file folder with your name on it. It comes across God's desk. He opens up and the top page is some issue related to you. Your health, your family, your kids, your spouse, your job, anything. Your ministry. And God reads over this anthropomorphism, this is just making God human so you can understand what I'm talking about here, but God reads it, signs some things, gets this, not presidential seal, but God seal, seals it, and puts it up in the outbox. He's made a decision concerning you. Okay? So that would involve, like, marriage, who you marry, how long you'll live, all the days ordained for me were written in your, your book before one of them came to be. He's decided how long you'll live how rich you'll be or how poor, what job you'll be in, for, uh, in and how, for how long, everything. He's made decisions about you. He's disposed of your case. That's what disposal means. Does that make sense? It's not an easy word for us, but you understand the concept. God has thought about you. He's weighed out the situation in a human way. He doesn't have to work things through. He instantly knows what to do. And he has made decisions about you. That's what disposal is all about. Okay, now let's go backward to the phrase that immediately precedes it, God's wise and fatherly disposal. You see that phrase? Wise disposal and fatherly. 
So this is a very tender expression. What does it mean, his wise disposal concerning you? Yeah, it is a very wise thing for God to do everything he does in your life. He is always wise. You may question that. Job definitely questioned it. He didn't see the wisdom to it. There's some things like for us in Providence, we don't get it. You think about some really talented, gifted individuals that die very young. That happens a lot in church history. Think about like Borden of Yale. He was an heir to the, to the Borden uh, family fortune. Gave it all up to be a missionary. He was en route to the mission field and in Egypt on the boat caught spinal meningitis and died. Never made it to the mission field. He's most famous for what he turned his back on and gave up, not what he actually did. You're like, Lord, can I just... I mean, once you read the story, he's like, can I talk to you about that whole board thing? I don't get it. I mean, here's a brilliant, intelligent, wealthy guy who is ready to serve you on the mission field, and those people never even met him. Why would you do that? And the same thing happened with Adoniram and Ann Judson. They traveled with some, some friends on the mission field. Uh, they, I forget their name. Um, that's the whole point. You can't even remember their names. She ends up dying at sea. She gets pregnant and dies at sea. The husband gets, goes, becomes very depressed and goes back home. Their whole story is ended. It's a very interesting, like, why didn't all of them make it? You know, why did you do that? Why did she die in childbirth, but was already, like, fevered, and then died and was buried in Madagascar, in Sandy Beach somewhere? Doesn't make a lot of sense. And I'm telling you, that gets multiplied by almost more than you could measure in church history. The more you look at it, it's like, that didn't make sense, I don't get that, why did you do that? David Brainerd, why did he die at 33? Why didn't he live long? Why didn't you heal him of tuberculosis? All right, so it's wise. God's disposal in every condition is wise. He knows what he's doing. It's a vast, complex system he's doing here in history, and he knows what he's doing. Very wise. But let's go beyond that to the word fatherly. What does that word fatherly say to you? His fatherly disposal. Yeah, there's love and care. Um, and that's, that's the thing. He, he could have said, the definition Burroughs could have stuck in the word kingly, it's a sweet, inward, quiet, gracious, famous spirit that freely submits to and delights in God's wise and kingly disposal. God is a king, and as a king, he gets to dispose of you. This is the way I would, I would put it. It's an improved definition to say fatherly and not kingly. Okay? Because father does imply authority, the right to dispose. Let's put it this way. A king will do in every case what's best for his kingdom. <coughs> including sending off a generation of young men to defend it from an invader. He will send many of them to their death so the kingdom can survive. And we understand that's what kings do. We don't think of them as a cold-hearted tyrant. The entire kingdom, all of the men, women, and children, the old people, the, the infants, all of them were threatened by this invading army. You meet that with an army that you've trained and gotten ready and sent out, and many of them, you know many of them are going to die. You're not being cold-hearted, you're just doing what's best for the kingdom. Does God always do what's best for the kingdom? He absolutely does. All right? Fatherly, the father does what's best for the child. Right? He's going to do what's best for you. We understand that might not always be what, you, what the child thinks is best or loves or whatever. We, we get that. Parenting means crossing the will of the children frequently. All right? Frequently. We get it. I think it says in Proverbs, say, a child left to himself brings dishonor to his parents. So, you don't leave the child to himself. Figure out whatever that means. Anyway, you're going to cross the will of your children for what's best for them. Here's the beauty of providence. 
What's best for the kingdom is the same as what's best for the children. It's the same. God is very, very wise in orchestrating a plan. And in other words, when you get to heaven and you look back, you will see that everything God disposed of in your case was in the end best for you and also best for the kingdom. It's incredible. That's the doctrine of providence. All right, so God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Just deal with in every condition. What that means is every little and big thing in your life. Big things, how long you live, birth, death, who you marry, how many kids you have, job, calling, vocation, all of that, big things, all the way down to tiny details. Did you make that plane or not? You know, did you, were you on time for this? Or did this happen? Or, you know, all of those little details, all of it, and every condition, part of God's wise and fatherly disposal. Now we're left with this. Freely submits to and delights in. Okay? So what does that mean to you? Submits to God's disposal. Submits to. Okay? It's trust. <laughs> Trusting in Him. What else? What would the opposite of submission be? I'm not going to submit. Re defiance. Rebellion. And you know it's in your heart, don't you? I'm telling you, it's part of our sin nature to defy God, to rebel against Him, to rise up against Him, because we don't like what He's doing. <clears throat> this is the opposite. I'm going to submit. I'm going to go under. I'm going to yield to this. Freely. What does that word mean? You freely submits to. It's like not reluctant at all. Not holding back. I trust Him completely. Just like you were saying, I, I freely submit to what God decides in my life, what God is disposing of in my life, I'm going to freely submit to it. But now we got one last word, delights in it. Wow. Boy, Burroughs goes for everything. He's like swinging for the fences here. Do we really <coughs> have to delight in everything that God decides to do in our lives? We actually should. So what does that word mean to you, that, that we freely delight in God's wise and fatherly Okay. Like even like what God is doing, find delight in it. Okay? Anyone else? That's man, hard to imagine. When you talk about we were talking about the hardest things there are in life. Death of a spouse, death of a child, right? <clears throat> Delights in that? Okay. It's hard hard to imagine, but how could we delight in, in something like that? I think some of it is you, you just need to know that God does not willingly afflict his children. He doesn't delight in bringing affliction for affliction's sake. I think the key to all of this is the statement in Hebrews 12, which says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. So there's joy in the cross for Jesus, right? Is it, is it in the actual process of being crucified? by the Romans. There's zero joy in that. Is there any joy in being despised and rejected by the Jewish people? None. Of being put to shame outside the city gate? No. None of that, and we could add a hundred other descriptors besides. There's no joy in any of those things. But there is a joy in all of it, though. What is the joy in the cross for Jesus? Salvation. For a multitude greater than anyone could count, from every tribe, language, people, and nation who will spend eternity praising God for many things, but for the central greatest thing of all, the gift of Jesus Christ on the cross for them. That is going to be the centerpiece of our heavenly worship. Is it not? That's the centerpiece of everything. You're going to spend eternity 
happily praising God and Jesus for what God the Father and Christ the Son did for us at the cross. And there's joy in that. At a lower level, there's joy in your suffering too. God has good ends in mind. Let me close with this. I was speaking some time ago with uh, a woman who had was going through a, a trial had to do with um, um, a miscarriage. And there was a it was still pretty fresh in her mind, and she welled up a few times just after worship we were talking. And uh, she talked about being beaten like on an, on an anvil, like she had this image of a blacksmith working her, right? And she had heard a uh, <coughs> illustration um, about the iron being worked, and um, you know, and that gave her comfort that there's worth and value and the only way you get worked is if you get heated up and get, get pounded. All right. And you know, I, I said, well, I, I think that's helpful. All right. But you should understand how God is feeling while he's beating on people. There are tears in Jesus' eyes right before he raises Lazarus from the dead. That's compassion. Like he knows how much death is going to hurt his people over 20 plus centuries. He knows he's not going to be there to raise the little baby from the dead. He's not going to be there to raise the spouse or whatever. The people are going to cry. They're going to, and the rest of their lives, they will not have that love. He knows that. He's compassionate. He's a father. He's fatherly while he's doing that. And she said that's helpful. So this is the definition. We're going to spend more time next week kind of unpacking it and applying it. Um, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.